The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, we're going to get into our text this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, we are uh, almost at the end of studying Mark's Gospel. The, uh, we've been in this series for um, this, this particular round. We've been uh, eight weeks, I think. This is, this is the seventh of eight weeks. Uh, and last year, we spent 11 weeks walking through the first half of Mark's gospel. So this is, um, we're coming towards the end of um, the culmination, really, of a whole lot of things that Mark has been teaching about. If you're using one of those Bibles at the back, um, it's on page 964. Uh, the, the section that we're looking at today details... The final few hours leading up to Jesus' death. It's a very somber passage passage of Scripture. And Mark has, in many ways, been leading up to this point for a very long time. From Mark chapter 8, verses 38, which is where we started off the series this year, Mark has been teaching us about Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. He speaks of his, that's where Jesus first speaks of his death. And Mark has been showing us the long road that Jesus was walking to get to Jerusalem and ultimately come to his end. Today we see the final few steps, the final few meters, if you will, that Jesus walks towards the cross. This lead-up has involved Jesus' teaching that those who are going to follow him must expect to walk a very similar kind of road, to take up their cross and die and lose their life for Jesus. He has been reconfiguring his disciples, thinking about who he is, that he is their Messiah, but he is also God incarnate. He has been helping his disciples to understand that he is bringing in a new kingdom, not a geographic kingdom, but a, but a spiritual kingdom, an invisible kingdom, but a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom with no end. And with that, He's been showing that his purposes are no longer just for Jerusalem or just for Israel or just for the temple, but really it's actually for the entire world. God's kingdom was gearing up to move out. That's what this whole thing has been about. That's Jesus entering Jerusalem, being in the temple for a few days, and then very symbolically leaving the temple. God leaving the temple and predicting the temple to be destroyed. And now we come in our series to Jesus' death. Over the last few chapters, Jesus has been sharing the Passover meal with his disciples before praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, followed by his arrest, his trial, and his death sentence. And this is where we pick up the scene and the story this morning. And what we're going to see in just a few moments is that this is one of those passages that as we read it, it's probably best understood or best taken in the same way that we might stand in front of a, a wonderful portrait or a wonderful picture, a wonderful painting. You know, when you look at a beautiful painting, you can just, you can just, you're meant to actually stand in front of it for a while and take it all in and, and let the different colors, let the color red lead your eyes around the whole painting, taking every single moment of it, taking the whole thing, look at it in one go. You know, we don't read a painting left to right. We take the whole thing in. And that's going to be our approach this morning. We're going to just try and take it in. We're going to be looking at the crucifixion and the moments that led up to his crucifixion. And it's horrible. But we must take it in. We must look at it all. And so in the same way that you would look at a painting and just take it in, looking at the contours and the colors and the textures and the movement, 
That's what we're going to be doing this morning as we look at Jesus' death. So let's read Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Father, I ask that you would send your spirit to come and speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, inhabit my words as I seek to clearly and correctly teach your word, Father. Jesus, give us ears to hear what you want us to hear this morning. May we be obedient to you and and rightly submit to your word. And may we see in in your word this morning that you truly are wonderful, Lord, and your death for us is the greatest testimony of your love towards us, the greatest witness of your love towards us. Amen. We all know the feeling of an awkward silence. Like, have you ever been in a room with a crowd of people and for some reason, inexplicably, everyone just stops talking at the same time and everyone kind of looks around each other and someone's got to break the silence and just start talking? Or maybe it's just one-on-one, you're having a conversation with somebody and you realize after a while that you're the one who's actually doing all the questions. You're the one who's actually asking all the questions. Like, have you, have you ever been in a conversation like that when you're talking to somebody and they are just there to answer your questions, they're not actually asking you about your life, and you, after a while there becomes this kind of, like, awkward silence where you're like, hey, 
So, hey, I'm just going to tell you about my life now because you're not asking me, so I'm just going to tell you that. Silences can be very, very awkward. They can be really, ugh, this is kind of strange. Silences can also be very uncomfortable. An awkward silence can easily become an uncomfortable silence, but an uncomfortable silence is actually something else. In primary school, uh, a few friends of mine did the wrong thing and they got, pun- they got punished. They got sent to the office and Mrs. Webster, who administered their, uh, their discipline that day, took them one by one into her office and sat them down on the floor and then she stood opposite them, folded her arms and stared directly at them and with a stern look on her face, stared at them in silence for 10 minutes. And then she released that one and then got the next one in to sit and do the same thing. And then she released that one and got the next one in to sit and do the same thing. Talking to them afterwards, they said, give me the cane. <laughs> Expel me, give me anything but that. That was horrible. I think Mrs. Webster was on to something. Some of you teachers are like, oh, I could actually try that. This is actually going to be quite simple to do. I'm not sure if that's legal anymore. I'm not sure what that, what that constitutes as, I don't know. I'll leave that there. Silences can be uncomfortable. Silences can also be painful. There's the silence at the dinner table where there used to be happy chatter. There's the silence when there used to be happy pillow talk. There's the silence in the house now that they're gone. Painful silences can mean loss. Painful silences can mean regret. Painful silences can mean isolation and loneliness. And if we let our eyes be drawn to the colors and the contours of the passage today, we're going to be drawn to something that's right in the very middle of the passage. We're going to be drawn to a silence, three hours of silence in the middle of our passage today. And the more that we understand what this silence means, the more we're going to be blown away by how loving and powerful this painful silence was. In verses 33 to 34, we find perhaps the most important part of chapter 15. Mark writes, And when the sixth hour had come, that's midday, they measured the hours from dawn. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three hours where Jesus doesn't say anything. And not only is there silence, but there's also darkness, an absence of light. Dark silence for three horrible hours. Three hours where the Son of God writhed in pain, in agony, in despair, in darkness, and in silence. He was feeling every bit of it. Even though he was God, his incarnation still ensured that he still felt every backhand to his blindfolded face. He knew the taste of blood in his mouth. He still flinched as the whips came down across his skin. Everything still hurt. He even refused the aid of the cocktail of wine and myrrh, a drink that was designed to take away pain and numb the senses. He refused it. Jesus felt everything. He felt it all. So let's take a step back and look at this painting and admire it while I do my best to describe what's going on here. 
And we're going to reach back into last week's text and pick up, pick up some of the things we missed out. What did Jesus feel? What was Jesus feeling there as he felt everything? He felt the deception and betrayal of someone who was close to him, of Judas. He bore the humiliation of that kiss and the desertion as his disciples fled his side, every one of them. He felt the disgrace of the spit that was still in his hair, the ache in his cheeks from being blindfolded and struck upon his face. Blow by blow, they teased him. He was exhausted from being inescapably harassed hour after hour after hour until dawn. He felt the crushing heartache as Peter, his best friend, denied any association with him. It's painful to hear, right? It's not a painting that we want to linger at. It's not something we want to spend heaps of time in because it's painful to read, but we have to go on. We must look at all of it. He felt the sting of the lies of false witnesses. He felt the astonishing condemnation of those who were meant to deliver justice. He felt the vulnerability of being brought before a Roman delegate to decide his fate before utter helplessness as great crowds screamed for his blood. I only just noticed it this week as I studied this text again that the words crucify him only come when Pilate brings Jesus in front of the crowds. But these crowds, they hold a lot of power. They're fickle, they're easily swayed. I wonder if I wonder if crucifixion was even on the cards for the Sanhedrin as they met. I wonder if Pilate even thought that the crowds would even get that far. When Pilate said to the crowds, hey, will I release to you Barabbas, who killed some of you? Or will I release to you Jesus, your king? And they said, give us Barabbas. And he said, okay, what shall I do with, with this Jesus, you, with your king? And they said, crucify him. Could they imagine how powerful this crowd would be to actually call for Jesus' crucifixion and get it? Nevertheless, that's where they end up. It's, what's, it's what the crowds wanted, and it's what Pilate gave them. Jesus would have felt the relentless pain and shame and embarrassment of the scourging. The scourging was nicknamed the halfway death because most people didn't survive it. The soldiers would have stripped Jesus naked, tied him to a post, and used the deadly flagellum to whip him across his back. The flagellum is like a cat of nine tails, except it's embedded with, uh, with stones and pieces of bone and broken up pieces of pottery in order to remove the skin from his back. He felt the humiliation and agony as 600 Roman soldiers, the whole battalion, surrounded him and mocked him and beat him and spat on him. He would have felt the sharp thorns of their, as they were twisted and pressed into his skull mocking his genuine kingship. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He felt the disgrace as he made the long walk on the road to the cross, being led by as many people as possible so that they could yell at him and spit on him and mock him. For some, all they wanted to do was just stare. He was despised and rejected by men. <clears throat> We're told that a man named Simon from Cyrene was passing through and was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. 
Now, if that's not a visual example of exactly what Jesus preached to his disciples in Mark 8, it's, a, it's at the very least confirmation of the validity of everything that's happening this day. Mark's readers would have known who Simon the Cyrene were. They knew, they would have known Rufus and Alexander, his kids. Rufus is the one that Paul mentions in his letter to the Romans in Romans 16. Simon Cyrene's wife is most likely the woman that became like a mother to the Apostle Paul. If Mark's readers could have gone and found Rufus, found, Rufus, found Alexander, maybe even seen Simon and saying, hey, can you actually tell us this again? Did this actually happen? Simon was there. This attests to the validity of all of this. They could have gone and asked him these things. And we finally come to Golgotha, the place where he would be crucified the place where mankind would somehow, inexplicably, kill God. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. At Golgotha, he was thrown down onto the crossbeam, and by hammering nails through his hands, they attached him to the beam. He would have felt the rough edge and the splinters scratching against his recently flayed back. Four, so- four soldiers then hoisted him up so that they could attach the crossbeam to a standing post. And then Jesus himself would have been attached to that standing post by driving a single spike through his feet, one first, then the other. Crucifixion was the lowest form to die. It wasn't just designed to kill, but also to humiliate the victim. It was so shameful that a Roman citizen who was seeking to maintain some measure of respect and dignity within his community would never even talk about crucifixion in public. It's not table talk. You don't bring up crucifixion. It's horrible. And it wasn't just designed to kill or to humiliate. It was designed to torture the victims. Jesus' entire weight would have hung off the nails in his hands, would have put such incredible strain on his torso that it squeezed the air out of his lungs. The only way that he could breathe would be by shifting his weight to the, to the spike through his ankles and hoisting himself up so that the air could rush into his lungs. The medial nerves in his hands would have been torn apart and the coalition of the tarsals in his feet would have been separated, excruciating pain. Together with the asphyxiation, the slow asphyxiation, the cramping, the bleeding, the pain as a scourge back chafed against the splintered and uneven wood, Jesus' death would have been nothing short of excruciating. In fact, Jesus' death is where we get the word excruciating from. It actually literally means out of the cross. It's where it comes from the word crucifixion. In front of the crowds, Jesus became a public spectacle where they jeered and taunted and mocked and speculated about what he was going to do next. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And there he hung for three hours, from noon till 3 p.m. Since the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has had to pay a relational toll as his friends deserted him. The emotional toll as he's been kept up through the night to face his accusers, and now this physical toll as, he's body, as his body is tossed around like a rag doll. But the worst of all was yet to come. The worst thing about the cross was about to take place. We'll come back to now, verses 33 and 34. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence and darkness. For three hours, a darkness descended upon the land, and Jesus doesn't say anything. Now, we might presume that since Mark passes over this so quickly, the time just passed, but it didn't. Time is relative, right? Like three hours is a short amount of time if you're going to sleep. Like I only got three hours of sleep. It's not very long. If someone wants to say to you, it's only three hours till Christmas, you would say, that's no time at all. That's imminent. But three hours of being suffocated, that's not a short time at all. That's a long time. A long and silent time. What does this silence mean? It's not an awkward silence. It's not a peaceful silence. It's not an out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of silence. It's a painful silence. It's an enduring silence. And it's ultimately a loving silence. You see, on the cross, Jesus doesn't recant. He doesn't try and reason his way out of it. He doesn't argue or even speak. Why not? Because he's being obedient. Obedient to the purpose for which his Father sent him. Obedient to the purpose which he, together with God the Father and God the Spirit, contrived before the creation of the world to display their love for sinners by redeeming them at the highest possible cost through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus was quietly submitting to that purpose, quietly obedient, like a sheep going to be sheared, making not, a, not making a sound like a lamb waiting to be slaughtered. Jesus was silent. But it's not just silence, it's darkness. This darkness was an unnatural darkness. Some people have tried to explain that uh, maybe the darkness came from an, a, a solar eclipse. But three hours is far too long to be a solar eclipse. Besides, it was Passover, and Passover was held during a full moon, so, that, so that's impossible. Some people say that the darkness might have been because a, a, a sandstorm, a dust storm, blew in from the desert. But during Passover, this is the wet season. There's no way that, this, that a dust storm could have arisen. Some say that it might have just been cloud cover. But this is just way too dark for that. We can second guess. We can try and reason. We can try and explain these things. But can we just for a moment trust that when the eyewitnesses who were there at the time say that it was an unnatural darkness, that it was an unnatural darkness, that it was completely inexplicable, that they can't explain it, but just darkness came. It was a deep and it was a long darkness, a supernatural darkness. This darkness, of course, reminds us of another darkness from many hundreds of years earlier. If you've ever read Exodus, you'll read that, that, about that great salvation event at the first Passover where God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And just before they were rescued, a darkness came which preceded the salvation of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of God's people delivered from slavery to Egypt. Here now in Jerusalem, at this Passover, the darkness precedes the salvation of billions maybe even trillions of people being set free from a far greater enemy than Egypt, a far, greater sinister, a far more sinister enemy, sin. So what was the cause of this darkness? 
wasn't a dust cloud, wasn't a solar eclipse, it wasn't cloud cover. This, this, the cause of this darkness was sin. It was our sin that held him there. That was the darkness. The darkness was sin coming in, the, the accumulated sins of, of mankind for, for, etern- for, for all of the, the existence of the earth coming down into one moment onto the Son of God's shoulders. The prophet Amos in chapter 8 gives us a bit more detail. He says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. That's a harrowing line, right? Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. That horrible punishment for sin was our trajectory. This is God's judgment. This is God's wrath coming down upon sin. It's where we are headed in our sin. That's the wrath of God against our sin. Utter gloom and anguish. The wrath of God against sin is mourning and lamentation. It is sadness and gloom. It is painful and bitter. It is darkness in the midst of daylight. And that darkness is what was coming down on Jesus. You and I are responsible for that darkness. There was a portion of that darkness that has our name on it that day. Darkness came down that we are responsible for, we are directly responsible for. The darkness accumulated by the sins of mankind was paid for in three hours of dark and silent anguish coming down on Jesus at the cross. And since Jesus, the righteous and perfect God-man, took that punishment in our place, you and I will never, ever have to experience that darkness. It was coming for us. There was nothing that we could do. We needed a redeemer. And Jesus stepped in to take our place, to be our substitute. But we've got to ask now, why did Jesus ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a tricky question, right? That's a tricky, that's, I was reading this with a friend of mine, a buddy of mine a number of years ago, and he read that and he said, it's just so unfortunate that Jesus said this. Like it seems like Jesus was so committed to the cross, but then he lost his nerve. It seems like Jesus got to this point where he just completely had all this regret that he was going through. He was regretting that he was there. Is that what's going on? I don't think so. See, what we're seeing here is the spiritual toll that Jesus had to pay. He had the relational toll, the emotional toll, the physical toll, but now he pays a spiritual toll. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For our sake he made him, that's God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that darkness as it came down in Jesus was, was Jesus actually becoming sin for our sake, so that in him you and I might be righteous in God's eyes, so that when we put our faith in him, God would look at us, and despite our track record, he would say, righteous, guiltless holy, clean, spot. He would look at us and say that. That's what it means. But by coming, becoming sin, he was also being forsaken by his father. 
Jesus became sin, he had to be forsaken by his father. God is holy. If Jesus became sin, then the father had to forsake the son. Sin can't come close to God. God is holy. God is holy. Yes, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, where so much of the agony that he went through was described, but even deeper than that, Jesus found in Psalm 22 the only words that could, that can, that could, could properly articulate what he, what he was experiencing actually to be true. See, Psalm 20, Jesus wasn't just quoting Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing Psalm 22. He's drinking in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the cup that he had to drink. He was forsaken by God. How can we understand such agony? How can we understand such pain? Let me put it to you this way. Suppose one of you was to come to me after the service and say, Hey, Jimmy, I don't ever want to see you ever again. I don't ever want to talk to you ever again. I want nothing to do with you ever again. Now, make no mistake, that would hurt. That would be hard. I would, I would, I would have a rough afternoon and probably a very rough week following that. That would be tough. But I would probably get over it. Imagine if my wife, Kirstie, came and said that to me. Jimmy, I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you ever again. That's a, that's a different kind of pain, right? Now, Kirstie and I haven't been even married for 14 years yet. And our love for one another is imperfect. So now let's suppose, let's realize, let's understand that God and God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit within the Holy Trinity, they are perfect, loving each other, perfectly, perfectly loving each other for eternity. That's the pain that Jesus is going through. That's the anguish. That's the hard part of the cross. This is one of the strongest paradoxical images in the entirety of Scripture. We can't quite get our heads around it. The ontological unity of the Trinity was not broken. And yet, somehow, the separation of God the Son from God the Father and God the Spirit was real and fact. And it was this separation that became the greatest agony for Jesus. God the Father forsaking him was far worse than what Judas did, than what Peter did than what the Sanhedrin did, than what Pilate did, than what the, the battalion of soldiers did. It was far worse than what the crowds called for him. It's far worse than what you and I could ever do to Jesus. That was the pain that Jesus is going through. The separation of Jesus from his father was his pain. This is the greatest act of love that we could ever witness. This is the greatest act of love that we could ever be a part of. This is the greatest act of love we could ever, ever understand. There is no other explanation for this than God's love for us. This is the reason why all of it was happening. This is the answer to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was for us. The answer to that question is Jimmy Smith Cottrell. The answer to that question is Gerard Collins. It's Nadia Kasper. It's Shireen Allison. That's the answer to that question. The answer to that question is you and I. This is the reason that the Son of God became sin. You see, if we remember back from our series from a few weeks ago, it was always God's plan for him to dwell with and be part of his family, to dwell with his people, to dwell amongst them, to be with them. 
So that his people could come to know him, they could have a relationship with him, they could love him, they could be loved by him, they could know him, they could, they could see him, they could be part of it. His plan was for that, that his people would be able to have a relationship with him, that he would be our father and that we would be his kids. That's the greatness of God's love for us. That's what he desires. But that is straight up impossible when God is holy and we are not. Now, it might not sound like a big deal to us, but the white, hot, perfect purity and the bright and dazzling glory of the holiness of God would incinerate us before we even came close to God because of our sin. So how could a holy God dwell amongst unholy people? Now, before Jesus came on the scene, the answer to that question was the temple. And before that, it was the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place where, God, where God's people would come to worship him. The only way that God could dwell with and live amongst and be known by sinful people without incinerating them by his holiness was through the temple. The, through the sacrificial system was through um, uh, the rituals that were set up to, to do that. And if it, the temple, in effect, kept God's people at arm's length, but was, he was still able to be amongst them. Now, at the center of the temple, the center of the, of the tabernacle, was the Holy of Holies, which symbolized and very much was the dwelling place of God. And the walls and the curtains of the tabernacle formed somewhat of like concentric uh, circles or barriers which prevented people from coming close to the Holy of Holies. And only one person could ever actually go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. And that person had to be a high priest from a particular family, and he could only go in there once per year, and only if a series of strict and particular sacrifices and ritual washings were completed for days leading up to that day to make him clean. The curtain into the Holy of Holies was a visual barrier, a visual image to demonstrate that God was perfectly clean, perfectly holy, and mankind, mankind is soiled by his sin, and yet God still had a desire to be with his people. And here, Jesus was being made sin, made grubby and soiled like every one of us. Though he never sinned, God made him to be sin, <clears throat> which means that Jesus was now separated from his Holy Father. And Jesus felt the intensity of mankind's sin with all of its shame and insecurity and separating power. He was made unholy. Why? So that you and I could be made holy. To take our sin. He took our sin. We got his righteousness. He washed us clean, perfectly and wholly and forever. That's what the death of Christ means. And this brings us to what I believe is the most tragic and horrible and unbelievable verse in the entire Bible, Mark 15, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Can we just pause for a moment and stare at that verse for a while? Can we not rush past it as we do so often as we read Scripture and just look at verse 37? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Take it in. Look at it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Immediately after his last breath, Mark tells us in verse 38, that straight after his death, the curtain in the temple, which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world, was cut in half, torn in two, top to bottom. The door is now open. The door is now open, not just for a high priest to go there once a year, but for anyone. Unholy people, sinners like you and I, Jew or Gentile, able to come into the presence of God. That door is Jesus Christ, whose flesh was opened up for us. And Hebrews tells us that we could actually, we actually pass through his flesh. It's a graphic image and it's meant to be. The death of Jesus opened up the way for unholy people to come into the presence of a holy God. And instead of us making him unholy, he makes us holy like Jesus. Now, we might say, why? Why does that matter? Like, why? Why is it such a big deal to even have a relationship with God? Like, why do Christians talk about this so much? What's so good about that? Why is that good news? It's good news because God is the one who made us. He is the author of our lives. And if we want to know how to live our lives and how we end the way that we're meant to, we have to come to God who designed us and made us. If we try and live our lives outside of Jesus Christ and try and gain meaning for our lives from any other source, we will fall short and be utterly unsatisfied and thirsty for all of our days. If we try and find meaning for our life outside of Jesus Christ, whether that's in a spouse or in having kids or, or, a, or a career or having a beautiful house or having good investments or a car or having lots of money or living a particular kind of lifestyle or having a particular kind of body or whatever it is, having friends around us, having influence, whatever it is, if we think that our life is going to gain meaning from having those things, we will be thirsty for our entire lives. That's why it's good news to have a relationship with God. That's why it's good news that we can come into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God and say, hey God, I'm here. You've made me holy because of Jesus who I just came through. That's why it's good news to have a relationship with God. Because it's only with God that our lives make any kind of sense. It's what it means that he's our king. It's what it means that he's our king. It doesn't mean that he stands and shakes his finger at us and demands demand action from us. Jesus as our king means that he, hand, he, that he has his hands on our steering wheel. He guides our lives. Will we let him guide us and lead us? He comes into our lives. <clears throat> he comes in as, as our friend, as our closest ally, the one who we can call on in our darkest nights, the one who will never leave our side. This is the one who is our king, the one who loves us as we are right now. The one who loves us as long as we become better, that is not true. We don't believe in a God, we don't trust in a God who is waiting for us to become a better version of ourselves before he will actually release his love towards us. We, none of us sit here right now going, oh, maybe next week I'll earn a, earn a bit more and actually win the love of God. No, his love for you is already now and true right now in this second. Regardless of what you did last night, regardless of what you did or didn't do this past week, God's love for you is sure. That's what it means that he's our king. Can you see his love for us in this? Can you see that Jesus did this? Even though all his friends, all his disciples deserted him, he was totally alone on the cross. 
It's not like he went to the cross and then realized everybody was disappearing. Went, oh, I'm going to wait until they actually come back. So I'm going to reschedule this till, till next Passover. I'm going to wait until I've got a bit more of a crowd, a bit more of a following. No, he died alone with nobody there. Which means when you and I sin and we reject him and we walk away from him, which we do so often, so regularly, every day we do this, it means, yes, we've sinned against him, but it also means we can come straight back to him and throw our lives upon his mercy, throw our, our entire bodies upon his mercy at the cross. That's what it means that he's our king. He's a good king. He's the one who we should worship. He's the one we should serve. He's the one we should devote our lives to. And it's this kingship that Mark really wants us to see. And this is why he tells us in the very next verse that when the centurion who, saw, who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now to be sure, this Roman centurion was not making a statement about Jesus being the second person of the Holy Trinity. He wasn't making a statement about the relationship between Jesus and his father. He was making a kingly statement. The son of God in this context means king. That's what son of God means. And if you remember back to the 12th of July, 2020, our very first Sunday here, when we started this series in the book of Mark, how does Mark open up his gospel? Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This has been Mark's point the entire time. This has been Mark's purpose the entire time. Occasionally we'll see throughout, this, throughout Mark's gospel other people coming in and saying, yes, Jesus, you are the Son of God, and here we see the final time. And of all people, it's a Roman centurion calling Jesus the Son of God. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. Belief might have come later. We don't know. But he was saying, that guy, the way he died, that's a king. Whatever it was about Jesus' death, whether it was his immense suffering, whether it was his silence, whether it was the, the label above his head that said, here, here, here is the king of the Jews, whatever it was, this Roman centurion got it. He looked at the cross. He would have seen his fair share of crucifixions, but he looked at the cross. He started it that day, and what he saw, something in the cross, made him realize this is the king. This is the true king. Some people look at the cross in horror and they laugh at it. They despise it. Verse 31-32 tells us this. How the chief priests and the scribes mocked Jesus to one another. Did you notice that difference? The crowds mocked Jesus to his face, but the, 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 the scribes and the chief priests actually in private, like they're not going to be seen mocking this man on the cross, but to each other they're going to mock Jesus. In private they're going to mock Jesus. And they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. In other words, come down from the cross and we'll believe that you are the King of Israel, the true Christ. But they got it wrong. It wasn't by coming down off the cross that Jesus would be able to prove that he's the King. It was by staying on the cross that Jesus proved that he was the King. That Jesus proved that he was the Christ. The centurion got it. The centurion looked at it and got it. See, this is what Mark wants from his readers. He wants us to be like this Roman centurion. He wants us to look at the cross. He wants us to study it and realize, oh, this is the king. 
This is the king worth di- this is the king worth giving our life to. This is the king worth serving. This is the king worth dying for. This is the king worth losing our lives for. You see, when we carefully start to consider the cross, we'll realize that Jesus is a king like no other. He came to serve. If you look at how he was rejected, how he was obedient, how he was gracious, and how he was stung like no other, if you look at his motivation, what he said about the cup and how much it cost him, if you look at the curtain and the darkness and everything else, you see that this was done for you and I. It was done with us in mind. It was conceived of before the foundations of the world. And it was done in the past, which means it's happened and already secure and sure. If we look at that, we'll see that it's the greatest act of love ever on earth, directed straight towards you and I. Let his love go into our heart. Let him bear our sin and be our king. Let's pray. Jesus, we we ask that your love would go deep into our hearts. We ask that our hearts would be made like good soil for the seed of the gospel to go in. Not like bitumen which bounces off and is blown away. Not like shallow dirt which which bears no fruit at all, Lord. Not amongst thorns where it's choked out. Father, we pray that you would make our hearts like good soil and that we would be able to take your love down deep into our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, that's a work which we trust you to do. We can't convince ourselves of this. We need you, Holy Spirit, to convince us of this. And that's our prayer. And we ask, Lord, that you would answer that prayer with a yes. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.